Thank you for listening to the Proclaim Church Sermon Podcast. Proclaim's mission is to make Jesus known through gospel-centered worship, community, and mission. For regular meeting times, more information about our beliefs, or other information, check us out at proclaimkc.org. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, whoops, sorry, the wind. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall, shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You can have a seat. I'm a, Cody. I'm the pastor here at Proclaim, and we have this wonderful um, opportunity this morning uh, for Caleb Wolf to uh, share from God's Word and to preach uh, this passage um, so here at Proclaim, one of the things that we love is to um, help to grow others in the, the gifts and um, passions that God has given them uh, in service of, of God and his church. And um, Caleb has preached before a few times and continues to, to grow in, in that area. And so we're, we're really excited about the opportunity for him to preach again this morning. So I want to introduce him so you knew who he was and uh, I'll... Pray for him as we get ready to um, hear from God's word. Lord God, uh, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to gather together this morning for this wonderful day. Um, Lord, as we jump into a passage that is, um, you know, it's just some bad news. Um, God, I pray that you would give us humble hearts that are willing to uh, see the truth in these words and how it relates to our own selves and our own hearts. That you'd give us humble hearts that would come before you uh, in humility and in confession and in surrender, um, looking to you as our only hope in these things. God, I pray that you would bless Caleb as he preaches, that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit, allow him to speak clearly from your word. I pray that your spirit would be in this place, opening our, our ears and opening our hearts to, to hear it and to obey. We thank you and we pray all this in your name. Amen. When I was in around sixth grade, my parents were homeschooling me. Um, a lot of you guys are going through that right now for the first time. My parents at the time really didn't have any other options besides sending me off to boarding school or putting me in a school where I didn't speak the language. We were living at 
uh, in Greece at the time, and my parents were missionaries there. And like a lot of kids, I felt like my parents had unrealistic expectations of me. Um, when, it, when I was being homeschooled, um, they were taking language classes, and a lot of the times I was watching videos at home, uh, once again, similar to a lot of kids right now, where a teacher would explain math or science, and then I had to go through these um, homework assignments and pass them before I could go out and play with my friends or, um, you know, be a kid. And uh, I really didn't have a problem with learning. My problem was that I felt like what I was being expected to learn, the amount I was being expected to learn, was too much for me or too difficult for me. And so I decided um, that I would sneak in to my parents' room, grab the answer key, fill out my questions, and even get one or two wrong on purpose so that it looked like I was actually doing my homework. It's really bad. Don't do that. Um, I did that for weeks, maybe even months, before my parents found out. Uh, I just wanted to go play with my friends, and I didn't want to get a long lecture every day on things I thought were just too complicated for me to understand. Looking back on those times, I understand now that what I was doing was wrong, and I even understood then what I was doing was wrong. And I know that lying isn't something God or my parents approve of, and my parents raised me to know that what I was doing was sin, that it had entered the world through Adam and Eve, that everyone struggled with it. But I really didn't get what Adam and Eve eating fruit in a garden thousands of years ago had to do with me feeling too stupid for my homework today. And as I got older, the connection became only more unclear as I saw and experienced even more sin. I, I didn't understand what racism and murder and rape and abuse and all these other sins I saw in the world had to do with eating fruit in a garden. It was really tempting to look at this passage and passages about sin in Scripture as a whole and wonder, if God is so good, why does he allow so much pain in the world over some fruit? Why does Scripture call evil and sin what it does when sometimes it doesn't feel or seem so wrong to us? And why does it call righteous and good what it does when sometimes it doesn't feel good to us? Why do I feel and want the things I do if I'm not meant to do those things? However, as I studied scripture and was mentored by multiple godly men, I began to see this passage with a new understanding. It's really made it to be one of the most impactful passages in scripture for me, my understanding of the gospel and my understanding of mankind's purpose in life. I really believe that the key to understanding today's passage is understanding that we, like Adam and Eve, are tempted in the same ways by the devil. That the devil's schemes really haven't changed. He's just really good at using them. That's why today we're going to look at the four stages of temptation that Adam and Eve and we ourselves go through as we break down this passage. It's going to be first, questioning God's instruction. Second, doubting God's character. Third, disobeying God's commands. And fourth, becoming our own gods. 
So the first comparison that we can make between the way Adam and Eve are tempted to sin in this passage um, and the way we are comes from the first three verses where we read, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. You guys, you guys catch that? The devil tempts Eve to question God's instruction. He says, did God actually say this? He doesn't start off by saying, hey, you know that tree that God told you not to eat from? You should go eat from that. And we see the same thing in our lives too. When, when we're tempted, it rarely starts with a direct opposition to God's commands. It really starts with questioning, what exactly are they? In, in today's passage, Eve, either through Adam or her own desire to be even more strict than God, adds to God's instruction. She responds, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, trees in the garden, but God said, you will not, shall not eat of the true fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But God never said not to touch the fruit. And don't we see the same thing in kids? You know, growing up in my family, you know, you always have that goody two-shoes that follows mom and dad down to a tee and adds to it. When mom and dad say it's time to go to bed, they say it's time to turn off the lights right now, no reading, gotta go to sleep right now. We laugh about that, but we do the same thing as adults. We say things are wrong or bad that God didn't actually say. Or we extrapolate and add to things that are in Scripture. And we don't only do that for ourselves, but we hold others to the standard that we've made up. We also see both adults and children acting the opposite way and questioning God's instruction by taking away from it or trying to figure out exactly where that line is so we can get as close as we can to it without crossing it. Once again, you don't have to teach kids to do this. You tell them, don't eat the cake. You come back five minutes later and their fingers are all in it and they're like, I'm not eating it. It's just the frosting, right? But as adults, we once again do the same thing. When the Bible says don't commit adultery, we say, well, what exactly counts as adultery? You know, is, is looking at pornography real adultery or is that, where exactly is that line? The problem with either of these responses is that now Eve and us are thinking and talking about the fruit in the tree, the one thing in the garden we're not supposed to do instead of taking God at his word. And in a world full of beautiful and amazing things God has created for us to enjoy, we're thinking about the one thing that would probably be best if we just didn't show an overinterest in. After the devil has gotten Eve to think about the tree and to question God's instruction, he takes the next step. He says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's next step here is to get Eve to doubt God's character. And really, it's an easy transition from the last step. It's natural to go from, what exactly was I told, to 
why exactly was I told that? The child that we're talking about earlier thinks that the reason his parents don't want him to eat the cake is because they want it all to themselves or they don't want what's best for the child. And we do the same thing. We ask, why does God tell us to be chaste before marriage and loyal in it? Is it because God wants to keep something good from me? Even with all evidence to the contrary, even with all the beauty and all the good things God's created for them to enjoy, even with all the you know, reasons our parents give us to trust them, we still doubt them. That's exactly what was happening to me when I was cheating on my homework. I thought that my parents cared more about me being smart than they cared about me. I thought they cared more about, you know, me becoming something um, that they wanted than they cared about me enjoying time with my friends. Here the devil tempts Eve by saying that God has lied and that he's keeping something back from them that they should want. And like I said, we're tempted in the exact same way. So the devil's now tempted Adam and Eve to question God's character and doubt it, or question God's instruction and doubt God's character. And he has them at a point where they, like us, decide if they will trust or not trust the definer of right and wrong. And what do we choose? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. We choose what we're going to do based on how we feel or how we think that it's going to serve us. We are tempted to disobey God's commandments, which is the third phase of temptation here. Now, an interesting point to point out here is that the devil doesn't only use these phases of temptation. He actually tempts Eve in the exact same ways with the exact same things that he tempts us today. Again, the devil sticks with what he does because it works. In 1 John 2, John describes temptation like this. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. He describes all that is in the world that is in context, the temptation that leads us to every kind of sin in three categories. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And aren't these the three ways we see Eve tempted in today's passage? The tree was good for food, desire of the flesh. It was a delight to the eyes, desire of the eyes. It was desired to make one wise, pride of life. In fact, any sin that you can think of falls into being tempted in one of these three categories. Pornography, desire of the eyes. Drunkenness, desire of the flesh. Not caring for the poor, the pride in life. Robbery, desire in the eyes. Illicit sex, the desire of the flesh. Gossip, the pride of life. We too are tempted by the same things in the same ways Adam and Eve were every day. And we often, like them, decide what we're going to do based on how we feel or what we want rather than trusting God. 
Now, before we get to the final phase of temptation, let's backtrack a little bit. In verses four and five, the devil told Eve, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Although the fruit may have appeared pleasing to the eyes and like it was good for food, we really see the real temptation here is that God was keeping something back from them that they should want, knowing good and evil. Remember, so far as we've gone through Genesis, God has been the one to define right and wrong. Each day he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. And when he makes mankind, he says, it is very good. And then he puts this tree in the midst of the garden and tells Adam and Eve not to eat from it, defining wrong or evil. And so far, mankind has submitted to what God has said is right and wrong or good and evil. See, I don't know if there was actually something in the fruit that gave them um, sight into good and evil or if it was just the act of disobeying God that opened their eyes to the fact that they could define right and wrong for themselves. But either way, mankind is tempted here in the same way the devil tempts us at this point. Don't let God say what is right and wrong. Don't rely on his instructional word. God doesn't have your best interests in mind. You do. Choose for yourself what is good and bad. You can tell you're like God. It sounds kind of like the guy selling weed in the middle school locker room, right? (laughs) It also sounds like the manager breathing over your shoulder to tell you to fudge the numbers on that spreadsheet. It also sounds like the boyfriend or girlfriend trying to have the conversation with the other person to get them to do something they know is wrong. And where does that decision to disobey God's command bring us? Where did it bring Adam and Eve? We read in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. First thing Adam and Eve do after deciding to choose what is right and wrong for themselves is to define something as wrong that God has not defined as wrong so far. They're tempted, like we are, to become their own gods. See, when we make ourselves finite and fallible, our gods, we mess things up. We call things good that are bad, and we call things bad that are good. And you can see this all the time in our world, especially now with everything that's going on politically. Every few years, if you rely on your politicians or your teachers or your parents or even yourself, what's right and wrong changes. But we know deep inside that what is right and wrong does not change. And so we're constantly having to go back and say, oh, I was wrong about defining right and wrong. I was wrong about defining right and wrong. We're the kid who eats the cake after being told not to and enjoys it while it's in our mouth, not understanding we have a gluten allergy. Or that there's our favorite pie in the oven that's gonna come out and if we eat this now, we're gonna have no room for that. See, the main point of this passage and the main point of our sermon is this. We are all rebel sinners. We all, like Adam and Eve, choose to be our own gods and define right and wrong for ourselves. 
See, the analogy with the kid breaks down because parents don't always have their kids' best interests in mind. But we serve a God who's all-knowing, all-loving, created every good thing we enjoy in this world and gave it to us before we could do anything to deserve it. And we spit in his face and call him a liar. We rebel against him and do what we want, what he knows we're not made for. That's what grieves God, and that is what separates us from him and destroys the relationship that we once had with him. And because we serve a God who's just as well, he cannot simply ignore our sin. It has to be punished, and punished for the heinous crime that it is with death. Hopefully now you can see, like I began to, why God had to punish Adam and Eve and why he had to punish us for our sin in the way that he does. A holy and just God cannot have a relationship with constantly rebellious sinners like us. It's not about the fruit or the cake or money or sex. It's about open rebellion against the creator. So can we just stop rebelling? Can we say we're sorry and repent and live perfectly from now on? We all know the answer to that, no. We're not able to do that. God displayed this truth through his people Israel. If you read the Old Testament, he set them apart by his choice to display his holiness and glory to the world. Even after they're set apart, blessed, and given direct instruction on how to follow God and be holy, they constantly fail and turn to their own idols and own ways. And then God, good and loving and glorious, decided to come down to earth and humble himself by taking the form of a man. He's tempted by the same things we are in Matthew 4. Command these stones to become loaves of bread, desire of the flesh. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, prove yourself the pride of life. And all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me, desire of the eyes. He's tempted like we are every day to take any temporary in immediate form, the things God's created for him to enjoy, food, glory, dominion, instead of taking the hard path that God has set out for him to have those things fulfilled perfectly one day with us in heaven. But he, unlike us, and unlike Adam and Eve in today's passage, responds perfectly to these temptations and then follows it up by living the rest of his life, displaying love and justice and righteousness perfectly in the way he lived and interacted with us. And we, wicked mankind, feel ashamed and embarrassed by his exposure of our sin and teachings on what is right and wrong. We took him by force, stood him before us, stood the creator before the created being and said, God, according to our standard of right and wrong, you are wrong. And all creation stood appalled at what we had done. And yet God, rich in mercy, used the payment for sin that we deserved, inflicted on Christ when he didn't deserve it, to credit on our behalf. That we might not only avoid the punishment for our sin, but so that we can be back in that right relationship with God. 
Christ died so that we may once again let God define right and wrong and submit to and glorify him as we were created to. And he was raised to show us that it worked, that he was who he said he was, and that one day he will come back so that we can live in that relationship physically with him for eternity. Let me be clear here. God didn't come to put a Band-Aid on the problem of hell. He came to solve the root issue of our separation from God. Peter puts it like this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you are healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Listen, if you want to avoid the punishment for your sin in hell, but you have no intention of submitting to God, there is no salvation for you. Because salvation in scripture is not just salvation from hell, it's salvation from our futile, rebellious way of life. And what about those of us who want to reject that submission, that find it appalling to submit to anything but ourselves, to worship any God but us? Well, I have news for you. You can't even worship yourself. You may think you are, but really you were made to worship something besides yourself and you will. For instance, you may be worshiping status because you give up things to ma that matter to you like time with your family or your health to offer as a sacrifice to status when you're at work. Maybe you do the same thing for pleasure or control or whatever you want to live for besides God. You are taking, as Jesus was tempted by the devil to do, things created by God that are good and twisting them, taking them out of a time and out of the way that God created for them to be enjoyed. You are in rebellion to the creator and you will be punished for the rebel that you are. In Philippians, this truth is put this way. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. So where do we go from here? What do we do because of the truths in this passage? Well, we should submit to and trust God. Some practical steps that we can take to do those. First, know scripture. Memorize it, read it, know it in context. When Jesus is in the desert and tempted, he responds to both temptations and to scripture taken out of context with scripture. And when Eve's tempted, the first phase is the devil asking her, what exactly did God say? And her getting it wrong is what starts the whole spiral down. Like I said before, Satan's tricks are still the same. If we read scripture, we see his tricks again and again and again, and we're able to catch them when we see them and call them what they are. Furthermore, the more we're in scripture, the more we understand and are confronted with both our sinfulness and God's goodness. We stop asking, why would a good God allow so much pain and suffering in the world? And why do good things happen to bad people? Or sorry, why do bad things happen to good people? And with the right understanding of scripture in our sin, we begin to ask, 
why has a just God not wiped us all out already? And we understand there are no good people, that we are all rebel sinners, and that we all have glimpses of good in us because we were created in the image of God before the fall. The second application I want to touch on is this. Don't work for your salvation. Work because of it. If you look at human history as a whole, the trend of mankind is to try to do things to appease God, to uh, avoid his wrath, or to do enough righteous things to gain God's favor. And we don't see that really working out. We'll never be good enough to stop worshiping our idols by ourselves. It's in our nature after the fall. But the good news is that Jesus came to make us new creations, to give us a new nature and to be in relationship with him. He died that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He didn't just die because we weren't righteous. He died so that we may now be able to live that righteous life. Righteousness isn't some sort of a burden. It's actually a blessing that God purchased for us on the cross. But what about those of us here who feel trapped in our sin? It's all well and good to prepare for temptation down the road by memorizing scripture, but it really doesn't help if you're in the moment being tempted and have no scripture memorized. And it sounds all good to say that we should live righteous lives, but let's be honest, that's really hard. What about those here today that would say, I do want to submit to God, and I do want to trust him, and I've asked him to help me, but I just keep failing to. For you, brothers and sisters, I have an application as well. Be in a godly, scripture-saturated community. Being around godly, scripture-saturated people and living, uh, living righteous lives is not a replacement for doing those things yourself. But if you are around them, you cannot help but begin to think about, learn, and grow in your understanding of Scripture. How nice would it have been for Adam to have spoken up when Eve was tempted to go, no, 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 God didn't actually say that. You, you shouldn't do that. Furthermore, if you're open and vulnerable with your questions, your doubts, your temptations, and don't know what Scripture says about those things, your brothers and sisters that have memorized Scripture and have read it are an amazing asset for you. They're given to you by God to encourage you. And just in case there's a part of us today that balks at the idea of being open and vulnerable with people, first, it's biblical. <laughs> Second, the kinds of people that know scripture that you look up to, that you think, wow, they live that righteous life, they are still the only kinds of people that there are in this world. Rebel sinners. I can guarantee you today that if you ask any one of them about what they have or do struggle with, you will not find someone that is all-knowing and perfect. You'll see that the reason that they're living the way they do, the reason they know what scripture says is because they've been tempted, if not by the same things, by very similar things to what you have been. And they have learned to combat that with scripture, that they've saturated themselves in the word of God. 
I don't know where I would be without the godly pastors and friends and mentors that I've had over the years. They've spoken scriptural truth to me in times where I was just too spiritually immature to know it or when I was too much in the midst of temptation to see clearly. We're not in this alone. See, I I didn't understand in sixth grade what my cheating and lying had to do with Adam and Eve in the garden. I didn't understand the severity or long-term implications of either my sin or theirs. But as we've discussed today, it has everything to do with it. Although my parents punished me, and God will discipline and correct even us believers when we fail to live rightly, they and he do so so that you and I might live the life we were created to, the one they know is best for us because we are in a relationship with them. It is because my parents cared about me and not because they didn't that they wanted me to learn and to grow and to take those classes. And it's because of them that I was able to get into the American school system a few years later ahead of many of my classmates, take classes for college credit, change my major halfway through college, and still be able to graduate on time. Now, my parents aren't perfect, and neither am I. I I wish I could say that they were always perfect parents or that I never lied or cheated ever again, but I can't. What I can say is that when I'm tempted to doubt them or doubt God, I can look back not only on scripture, but on my past to see that they love me. And when I fail, I can know that God has made a way for me to be made right with him. That he can turn bad into good and even use the times that he's had to discipline me in the fast as sermon illustrations a few years later. Only God can turn our failure into a beautiful story of restoration and hope. And he does again and again and again. My hope today is that we leave this sometimes confusing passage encouraged to combat the schemes of the devil. That the next time you or I is tempted to question God's instruction, doubt God's character, disobey his commands, and become our own gods, we can fight that temptation with scripture and choose to walk in righteousness because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Please pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for defining what is good and evil and not leaving us to figure it out on our own. We know that we've not only failed to live according to your will, but we've actually rebelled against it, choosing instead to become our own gods. We confess today, Father, that we are poor substitutes for you. Help us to trust in you when we're tempted, to rely on you when we fail, and to stand against the devil's schemes by the power of your word in your spirit. Amen.